Let us hear God's word, Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As we begin here today, can you recall your conversion? Some of us surely can. We can remember the time before God saved us and then the time after. Some of us maybe do not recall specifically when that happened, especially if we've grown up in the church. But nevertheless, for everyone, there does come a point in time of conversion, a time where we were dead in our sins, but now God has brought us salvation. But even as Christians, um, we can think of times where we were not as mature, where we were not living as righteously as we ought. But then God worked in us in some way, and maybe this is over the course of many years, Uh, We look back on it, and now we say, well, God's brought me through that. I don't struggle with those sinful things anymore, or certainly not as much. And so with this briefly in mind, we come here to this transition that Paul gives us in verse 21. And of course, Paul has laid out for us the reality of our sin. He has proclaimed how we are all totally depraved, meaning every part of us has been affected by sin. And so there is nothing that we say, think, or do that pleases God, and we all deserve his wrath and judgment. We don't deserve any reward. He also has told us about our total inability, meaning that we are enslaved to sin. We are unable to free ourselves, and in fact, we are unwilling to be set free from our sinful nature. On our own... On this scale of righteousness, we're at a zero, and we deserve judgment. We are born this way, we live this way, and we have no hope at all in and of ourselves to make any changes. Now, last week, I thought it important for us to briefly speak regarding how we get not only to 100 on this scale, but then how we live as believers. In this section, we will talk about how we get to 100, as it were, what uh, God has done through Christ to bring us to 100% on his demands of perfection, if we're going to be with him in heaven. But I focused especially, and primarily because it's not until chapter 6 to 8 that Paul addresses these things, but I emphasize the fact that even though now we have a new heart as God's people, um, And we do rank on this scale of righteousness. The Spirit is working in us to actually become righteous. We are slowly increasing on this scale. Ebbs and flows, two steps forward, a step back, or the other way around. But in the midst of all of this, we must recognize where we still are on this scale. We are nowhere close to 100. And we won't be until we get to heaven. Probably, though God only and ultimately knows the answer to this question, but we are probably only somewhere in the 20s or 30s among the most mature of us on this scale to 100. I'd be surprised if anyone has ever crossed the 50 threshold in life, even the most mature believers who have ever lived. And that's because 
everything we do is still filthy rags. In that, it's not perfect. It is still mixed with sin and pride, selfishness, defensiveness, hatred for God, and hatred for others. As out at the... uh, uh, what we call our water trough, the stock tank out uh, by the barn here the other day. And I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like trying to fill this 300-gallon tank with a sieve. We get a little water in it. There is a little bit of our righteousness. But there's a lot that flows through. There's still a lot of sin in us. Our tendency, of course, is to think we're far better than we really are. But this mixture gradually does improve over time due to the work spirit in us as we strive for righteousness. But we yearn for that day where we will be perfected. And so again, because Paul does not get to some of these points until later, I thought it important to say a few words last week. So we come now to Paul's basically answering the question, how do we get to heaven? How Can an unrighteous people be seen as righteous in God's sight? How idolatrous, truth-suppressing, critical, boastful, sin-enjoying people, including ourselves, including the godly and the religious, how can these people be acceptable in God's sight? How can it be done without violating God's character and his law? That's what Paul is going to address now. And so as we come here to this section, verses 21 to 26, many people over the centuries have said this is obviously the most important section in all of the book of Romans, and some have even argued this is the most important paragraph that has ever been written. It is certainly the pinnacle of what Paul is addressing here in this letter. So if you do have this outline for Romans, uh, they're tucked in your Bibles. Again, there's some back by Eric if you want to grab one. I just want to briefly call your attention to the, the outlines given in written form here on the, the first couple pages. And uh, again, you see general ones, you see more specific ones, and you see where our section fits into that. Um, but the one I think be, would be most helpful is the one on the back, and that is this pictorial one that we have here from my seminary professor, Dr. Chamblin. And you'll see on that that he gives these rectangular shapes for each of the sections. And this section now, along with chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, are the biggest ones on all of this. And that's because chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 are the theme verses of the letter. And now in this section, he expounds on it. He gives us a fuller understanding of what he said back in chapter 1. And see, again, every other section here is smaller in size. What we've just looked at, of course, is chapter 118 through 320, and see the arrows pointing to it. If we understand our hopeless condition, we will then understand the righteousness of God by faith. Uh, Notice also chapter 4 points backward to it, because he's going to use illustrations from the Old Testament to explain his point on righteousness and justification by faith. That leads into chapters 5 to 8, which I basically summarized last week. And then all that points to the end. And then in the middle, chapters 9 to 11, he expounds on Jew and Gentile and how they fit into all of this. So, again, just a, a brief overview in this way. But we come here, as it were, to the top of the mountain. And, not surprisingly, Paul words this section especially carefully. 
In fact, there are only five verbs in these six verses. Five main ideas he gives to us. But then there are six verbals, in other words, dependent clauses to help explain these five main ideas. And then there are 14 prepositional phrases. So he has five main ideas and 20 things to elaborate upon those five main ideas. This is so carefully worded that at some point, probably verses 24 to 26, I'll give you a sentence diagram just so we can follow his train of thought. Uh, these early verses are, are a bit easier for us to follow. Some have also suggested that Paul may have used an early Christian creed or hymn for at least parts of what he writes here, so that those in Rome would read this say, oh yeah, we confess that, right? We read from the Westminster Confession here. Yeah, we recognize that language. Or we sang that hymn and we recognize those phrases or something to that effect. So with this brief overview in mind, let us then uh, focus our attention here today on verse 21 and actually one major point in the verse. As I mentioned last week, uh, though I'd spent two and a quarter verses per sermon in the first section, this is basically probably going to turn the other way around on average. So let me read it again. But now, and note obviously that sets it all apart. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So you see the main verb here. The righteousness of God is revealed. That's his main idea. Note the first prepositional phrase, apart from the law. And then he has what we call a verbal, a participle, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So again, you see the main idea, the righteousness of God is revealed, and then these other two uh, phrases and clauses here that uh, expound on it. All right, so let's start with the but now. And let me start here by reading from John Stott and how he describes this. All human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and culture, Jews and Gentiles, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious, are without any exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That was the terrible human predicament described in Romans 1.18 to 3.20. There was no ray of light no flicker of hope, no prospect of rescue. As I said at different times, Paul keeps hammering the point. He was relentless. But now, Paul suddenly breaks in. God himself has intervened. Okay? After the long, dark night, the sun has risen. A new day has dawned, and the world is flooded with light. Let's um, turn a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. Okay. As I've mentioned on other occasions that um, Ephesians is like the Cliff Notes version of Romans. Paul spends 64 verses talking about sin in Romans. He spends three basically saying the same thing here in Roman, or excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 2. In Romans he says, but now... Notice what he says here in Ephesians 2, and beginning in verse 1. Note, he made our lives in italics here in the New King James. They added that in. Okay. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So again, in summary, everything we've talked about over the last uh, few months or so. You refers to Gentiles, we refers to Jews. All of us are dead. And then verse 4, but God. You will regularly hear people say that the but now of Romans 3 and the but God of Ephesians 2 are some of the two most beautiful words in these letters. Because everything now is different. Everything is now changed. The but now, the but God, okay, all this teaching about sin, all these ideas about God's wrath revealed against us is now changed. But in contrast to all of that, now God has done something different. There is hope for us, but not in and of ourselves. Paul has beaten us down, driving out all hope in and of ourselves to achieve righteousness and to be in heaven. But God has done something to fix this problem. And so verses 4 and following here in Ephesians 2 are, in many ways, a summary of what Paul is going to say through chapter 8 in Romans. So as we come back here then to Romans 3, our sin and unrighteousness and wrath is not the whole story. Now there is something different. But this adverb now has two ideas. The one is a temporal idea, time, chronology. But it also has a logical idea. Let me continue my argument, you might say, my point that I'm trying to make. And so from the temporal aspect, now the Messiah has arrived. Now a new era has dawned. The era of promise is now the era of fulfillment. The Old Testament has been superseded now by the New Testament. History has changed The cross, and really all of Christ's uh, life, and his, uh, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of that now is at the center of history. We change our calendars because of his birth, but all that he does now is this transition from the old to the new. Okay. Now, <clears throat> some will say that Paul is only talking about a logical change. Some will say he's only talking about a temporal change, but I think both are true. Let me show you why the temporal is, is, is to be understood. Note the, the end of the verse, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's calling us back to the Old Testament and what they said. Okay, so there's a chronology inherent in that. But if you look especially at verses 25 and 26, verse 25, whom, referring to Jesus, God sent Fourth, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his foreparents God had passed over the sins that were previously committed prior to Christ's coming. To demonstrate at the present time, now, right, Christ has come, 
his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so for these two reasons, and certainly we could look at others uh, in other places, Paul has a chronology in mind, a temporal now. Jesus brought a new order. The old order is now over. Israel is no more as a nation. We now have a new Israel. And that new Israel is made up of those who believe in Jesus. In chapters 9 through 11, he's going to elaborate upon that. We'll see some even here at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. Israel is now fundamentally different. Same thing with the sacrificial system. The ceremonies, those are all done. They're all over. The sacrifices, right? All those passages in Leviticus and so forth that talk about being unclean until evening or something like that. Those things are done with. The food laws, those things are done with. There is a new order. There is no more keeping the Gentiles away with a few exceptions. Now the gospel is to all believers. God's church, the new Israel, is made up of Jew and Gentile, and it is found everywhere in the world, not just a small piece of land over in the Middle East. The new covenant is better than the old because it's now fulfilled. It's no longer promised. It is now fulfilled. And furthermore, the law was never intended to save us. And so it was incomplete from the beginning in that sense. This is better because now Christ has come to fulfill what the law couldn't do, what we can't do, he has done. There is a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. There is one greater than Moses and David and Solomon who has come. The limits of location, the limits of people, the limits of religious actions are now gone. The types, the shadows, the anticipations that are found throughout the Old Testament in its people, places, and worship, these things are now fulfilled in Christ and in the church. And so we can say there's a hard break, there's a hard line, a major change, a fundamental transition from the era of law to the era of grace, from the era of promise to the era of fulfillment. And so there's clearly a discontinuity is the big term we use for this, between the Old and the New Testament. When you came into church today, you did not wash your hands ceremonially. That is fundamentally changed. You did not bring a sacrifice and put it up here on an altar. We are not burning it currently. We do not focus on blood here in our worship now. We do not have to take a a, uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. We are not sending in our tithes to Aaron's family and to the Levites. There are many changes that have taken place. But now, Paul is saying. Now, let me um, bring in a few balancing statements here. Because there are certainly other things in this conversation to remember. There clearly are continuous connections with the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. And the primary connection is that God saves his people the same way at any time in history. 
So whether you're talking about the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, whether you're talking about Abraham, Moses, and David, or Paul and Matthew, or us today, we are all saved the same way. And because that is true, then we cannot see a hard break between the Old and New Testament in that sense. And so the dispensationalists, we call them, go way too far here. And they see law or gospel. They see two ways of salvation. Now there's a continuing continuum among dispensationalists. But all true believers are saved by faith in Christ. Paul's going to make that point in chapter 4. And so if we in any way say there are different ways of salvation, we have fundamentally separated the idea that God gave to us from the very beginning in Genesis 3. We cannot do that. In fact, we could go back to Genesis 1 and all the ideas found there all the way until now throughout the scriptures, there is a fundamental message. Changes have come, yes, but not a fundamental change. We cannot say it was just all law and outward and physical and, and all that before Christ, and now it's all spiritual and salvation and grace. That, that's just not what the scripture says. Christ did not come to abolish the law, he says. The essence of the old covenant is the same as the essence of the new covenant. The outward forms have changed, but the essence of it has not. Outward religion has changed. But the substance is the same. We still must worship according to blood sacrifice. We don't bring in our animals to sacrifice here, but we are coming in the blood of Christ to worship. And if we don't, hey, God is not happy. We must come through the blood of Christ. We still come through these doors. We don't outwardly wash our hands. But if you're not resting in the perfection of Christ, then you are unclean in God's sight and he is not pleased with your worship. We don't take the leaven out of our homes. We wear mixed uh, uh, fabric and such here for our clothes. Uh, Those things are fine now. We can have lobster. We can have bacon with our eggs. All these things are, are done away with in that sense. But the essence of holiness in everything we do is still the same. The spiritual blessings of the old covenant continue into the new. The physical ones have changed. The temporal ones have changed, but not the essence. And so last week, right, we spiritually came for a meal, but there still was actual bread and actual juice, even sassafras. Um, But... uh, We still have water when we baptize. We still have a visible church. We can see one another. We're sitting on pews and so on and so forth. So let me read a few passages to tie some of this together. Let's turn, of course, to Hebrews 8, first of all, that we read a little bit ago. Since we have read it, Today, let me just highlight a few parts of it. Note especially verse 5. Right? The earthly priests served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
Right? The tabernacle points to heaven ultimately. Now verse 7. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault, note, with them, he says, and that's from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. You may have noticed that uh, Kathy included Zechariah 8 in the bulletin with the but now she highlighted. Okay, the promises of the new covenant in Zechariah as well. Okay, but now. The old covenant has failures. Because the law can't save us. Okay? And the problem is us, not the law. If you look at the last verse here in chapter 8, and then he says the new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And it was becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. The focus here is on the ceremonies in particular, the outward forms of religion in particular. Because notice, uh, we could say things of chapter 9. Let me call our attention especially to chapter 10. Right? In verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bolts and goats could take away sins. These outward things didn't actually save anybody. But they did point to what Christ would come to do. And that's what Paul's getting at there in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. Um, uh, note down in verse 9. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Verse 11, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, or you could say, but now, right? But God, but Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And we certainly could look at some other things here. But you see, there is a clear change that has come. Note the emphasis is on the ceremonies, okay? not the essence of the moral law, for example. Let's turn then to Matthew chapter 5, because everything we see and say about this discontinuity, this change, must also be balanced and tempered with other passages that say about the continuous nature. So in Matthew 5, one of the most significant passages in this context Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy or abolish, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So he fulfilled the sacrificial system. That's done away with. But there are other things that have yet to be fulfilled. And even so... The essence of it continues. We still come with sacrifices to worship, but it's the sacrifice in particular that we bring. Okay? These kind of ideas. <clears throat> Back here in Romans 3, notice verse 31. Here at the end of our section. <coughs> excuse me. Do not, uh, excuse me. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So again, you've got... Both truths being presented in the scriptures, we've got to hold them together, and the question is, how do you do that, and so forth. But simply, we cannot become a New Testament church and ignore the Old Testament, because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. We cannot say that the church began in Matthew 1 or in Acts 2 at Pentecost. 
It really began in the Garden of Eden. We cannot say that Christians are superior to Old Testament saints. We're all saved the same way. Okay? The only betterment in that sense is we're on the side of fulfillment. And so we understand it better. Okay? We have a better, clearer view. So, as we're focusing on the temporal, this time aspect of but now, these are the things that we keep in mind. Some will only emphasize the temporal meaning here. I think that goes too far. Okay. Some ignore the temporal meaning because of the excess of dispensational thought and making too many changes. But there is a temporal aspect. Let me say one thing here about the logical point, but we'll continue with our temporal thought here. Some people claim that the logical component is the most significant here, and maybe that's the case. Paul has been saying that we are all sinners worthy of wrath, but now, he says, let me explain how God fixed this hopeless situation. And he begins with these words, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the main, main point here. This is how it is, uh, it is fixed, you could say. Let's turn back to chapter 1 here a moment. And uh, note verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. Now the contrast. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, look at chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, referring to the gospel there from verse 16, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In chapter 1, verse 17, he is emphasizing the preaching of this righteousness. Okay? The righteousness of God is revealed when we tell people about Jesus. Okay? What I'm doing now, when you're talking with people that you know about the Lord and so forth, that is the righteousness of God being revealed in our proclamation. But here in chapter 3, verse 21, the verb's slightly different. Okay? It's not being revealed through preaching. It is revealed. It has been revealed through the coming of Christ is his emphasis here. Okay. So let me continue with this temporal point. Notice the last part of the verse. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness of God is not a new thought. It is not a new plan. God didn't try this way through Moses and it failed. And he says, okay, let me, let me come up with something different. That's not how we should understand it at all. From the beginning, from Genesis 3 on, this has been God's plan. We sang about it in our first hymn. These ideas of the righteousness of God through the Messiah... Right? We've, the, the Old Testament saint has known that all along. They certainly have progressive revelation in the sense that more information was given over time, but this idea has always been there. Okay? It's just now, it's a lot clearer to us. And so the ideas of grace, substitution, forgiveness, has been seen all the way back in the garden. So let's turn there just a moment. To look at this briefly, if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> okay, after Adam and Eve sinned, 
God could have come with lightning bolts in his hands. He could have come and wiped them out completely, and they deserved it. But notice in verse 8, after they try to cover their sin, God comes and he asks them a question. They're hiding, but he says, where are you? And then Adam responds, right? Verse 11, he asks another question. Adam responds again. Then to the woman, he asks a question, and she responds. He doesn't ask any questions of Satan. The contrast is very clear. God came to Adam and Eve in grace, in forgiveness. He called them to account. He punishes their sin. The woman in verse 16, the man in verses 17 to 19. Okay. But that option is not given to Satan at all. Judgment. A word of proclamation immediately. No questions or anything. And in the middle of it, of course, we see in verse 15, God promising the Messiah to come. This seed of the woman who would come and bruise the head of the serpent. And, of course, restore us unto God. In verse 21, we see a hint of what he would do to make this happen. Right? We cannot cover our sins with fig leaves or anything else. We cannot cover our sins. Only a substitute and the shedding of blood can make this happen. God is the one who kills this animal, the shedding of blood, and that then means their sins were atoned for, and they're now clothed. Their sin is covered. And so right here from the very beginning, we see the essence of what Jesus was going to do. And throughout then, with Abraham, with Moses, especially in the Levitical system and so forth, we see all of this anticipating the law here. This is part of the law, right? The section of the Old Testament and the prophets say these things. We could certainly talk about the calling of Abraham, the redemption from Egypt, as well as the sacrificial system. We could talk about the giving of the, the promised land and even return from exile. Paul in chapter 4 is going to quote from Genesis 15 verse 6 about this and give us the story of Abraham. He also quotes from Psalm 32, the words of David. Last week we read from Exodus 32 about the golden calf and Moses interceding. We could turn to Isaiah 53 in chapter 9. He's going to refer to Hosea 1 and 2. I mean, on and on we could go. The law and the prophets witnessed to all of these things, testified to the righteousness of God. This is not a new thing in God's economy of salvation. That's what he said from the beginning after Adam and Eve sinned. So this but now, this temporal change is not a change of essence, of substance, but if you will, the the stuff that stands on top, so to speak. The outward forms, this is what changes. The era of promise to the era of fulfillment. Let's turn a moment to Luke chapter 24. There are several passages we could turn to. Uh, Here's one of them. In Luke 24, remember, this is after the resurrection of Christ, and Jesus joins up with these two men walking to Emmaus, and they're uh, talking about, of course, all these events. And he eats dinner with them, and in verse 25 of Luke 24, know what Jesus says. 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The assumed answer here is yes, you should have known this. And beginning at Moses, right, the law, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Paul's saying the same thing here. The law and the prophets have witnessed to the righteousness of God. The gospel now reveals it to us much more clearly than the law ever did. But it still revealed it. Okay. And so wrath and righteousness are part of both eras of history. But now it is more clearly seen on this side of the cross. You know, when we talk about promises, it, it's uh, often the case that uh, things are a bit dark and, and murky and uncertain. But once the promises are fulfilled, it becomes very clear, doesn't it? So you imagine living in the Old Covenant and these promises of the Messiah. It's hard for us to do because we've been 2,000 years in the era of fulfillment. You imagine leading up to the coming of Christ, all the questions. Who's he going to be? Okay, we know now he's going to be a son of David, but, but which one? What's going on? You know, these kinds of things. You know, Tolkien does a great job in his works for this uh, idea. From the Silmarillion to the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings, he gives many prophecies. And he speaks about how uh, unclear it was until it was fulfilled. So the prophecies say of the firstborn or the, the, the aftercomers okay, in the Silmarillion. Uh, or you think, of course, about the ring and its destruction and so on. Um, it, it, he in a very good way, brings out how they're just not sure about this promise or this prophecy. But once Frodo and Aragorn and such do their thing, now it becomes very clear. Now, we have the same kind of scenario for us because Christ is coming back, and we have promises for that. But it's still rather murky and unclear, isn't it? The darkness we experience on this matter is is very evident, right? When's he going to come? We don't know. Are we nearing the end of the last days? How does the rise in persecution against Christians around the world fit with the tribulation passages in Revelation? Or other simple questions, what's heaven going to be like? Okay, are we going to play football in heaven or something? You know, um, we have these murky kind of ideas. It's unclear to us. But once we get there, once Christ comes, once that trumpet sounds, the new heavens and new earth are established, all of it will become abundantly clear. And that's the but now that Paul's talking about here in this context. Before it was unclear. It was there, but just not as clear. Now it is much clearer that Christ has come. Well, this is obviously a point that can be developed uh, for a long time. There's a lot of aspects to this. But let me end our time here this morning by talking about this on a personal level. Obviously, Paul is talking globally here, broadly, comprehensively. But this but now idea should apply to you and me too on an individual level. Think of Paul himself. On his way to, the, uh, to Damascus, on that road, he had a but now moment 
Prior to this, he was self-righteous. He was proud and hateful. He was under wrath and without hope, though he didn't realize it. But at that moment, Christ came to him and he was justified. He was converted. His bondage to sin became freedom. He was excluded from blessings, from grace, but all of that immediately changed. And then he realized it. This new event in Paul's life had been planned from eternity, but the moment of conversion came to him here on this road. He had a but now moment, you might say. So the question is for us, have you had that but now moment in your life? Hey, temporally speaking, have you had this change from death to life, from prior to Christ now to his coming in salvation? We may not have had such a dramatic experience as Paul on the Damascus Road, but if you had that turning point in your life from wrath to righteousness, from judgment to salvation, from without hope to a certainty of hope, For those of us who have grown up in the church, this transition may not be as clear to us, but the question remains, have you had this moment in your life? Has God brought you to himself and had this change? But then the question for us is, if that's true, are we growing in righteousness? And so forth. Let me read here a moment from James Montgomery Boyce, who, first of all, is quoting from Martin Lloyd Jones. And he puts it like this When the devil attacks you and suggests to you that you are not a Christian or that you have never been a Christian because of what is still in your heart or because of what you are still doing or because of something you once did, when he comes and thus accuses you, what do you say to him? Do you agree with him? Or do you say to him, yes, that was true, but now? Do you hold up these words against him? Or when perhaps you feel condemned as you read the scripture, as you read the law and the old covenant, or as you read the Sermon on the Mount, as you feel that you are undone before God's righteous presence, do you remain lying on the ground in hopelessness? Or do you lift up your head and say, but now, this is the essence of Christi- the Christian position. This is how faith answers the accusations of the law, the accusations of conscience, and everything else that would condemn and depress us. These are indeed very wonderful words, and it is most important that we should lay hold of them and realize their tremendous importance and their real significance. And then Boyce says, can you say these words? You can if you trust in Jesus and his death on your behalf. Can you say, like the, the hymn, Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, but now I am found. Once I was subject to the just wrath of God, but now I have been saved by Jesus, having received the gift of God's righteousness through faith in him. You know, it's easy for us to go through these verses and just think somewhat abstractly and fill our minds with this understanding. But ultimately, this is to come to us individually. 
Yes, there's a but now in terms of the era of history, but what about your own personal history? Have you come to terms with your sin? Have you come to Christ and look to him in faith and repentance? Have you had conversion? And if you have, then what about in your sanctification? We don't just let go and let God and just say, okay, now I'm saved. I can do whatever I please. No, we must work at our salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us by his spirit. There needs to be those but now moments on this, this sense, not the ultimate sense, but even as we are growing in righteousness. And again, that's some of what I was talking about last week and what Paul will get at later. But let's take these ideas and personalize them here in this way too. All right, well, next time we will look at the logical but now ideas that Paul gives to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for the fulfillment of your plan. We thank you for all the promises and that we now have the privilege of looking back upon them with much more clarity and understanding. We are thankful, Lord, that your promises all the way back to Adam and Eve have found fulfillment in Christ. We are thankful, Lord, that we are on this side of his life and death and resurrection, not only for better understanding, but for um, just being a part of the, the era of fulfillment. What, what uh, amazing blessing this is. Lord, we do pray for each one here. And we pray, Lord, that you have, and if not, that you will, bring a but now conversion to everyone. Lord, we pray also that you would continue to grow us in grace, bringing us from those uh, ways that we hold on to sin in our old man and our, uh, our sanctification. And we pray, Lord, that you would then transition us in this way, temporally too, to a life of more and more righteousness. Lord, we are again thankful that your word is one, one message. And uh, we see that here uh, even in this way, uh, through the coming of Christ. So Lord, we uh, pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.